This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murder of Robert David Hopkins. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. The dust had barely settled on Danny Brent's unsolved murder file when a new case shot to the front page of the Vancouver Daily Newspapers. Robert David Hopkins, a 48-year-old printer, was found strangled and shot in the head in his tidy suburban home. From all accounts, Robert Hopkins lived a quiet life. The Irish-born bachelor owned a neat little grey cottage near Knight Street and 22nd Avenue in Vancouver. Friends and neighbours described him as a mild, friendly man who kept to himself and spent long hours in his garden. Robert, who everyone knew as Bob, was gay. And like most gay men in the 1950s, he led a secret life. For all outside appearances, he was straight at work and then he was gay in his social life. While the media hinted at his homosexuality, nothing overt was ever printed in the newspapers of the day or voiced aloud by his neighbours and friends. In the 1950s, homosexuals simply didn't exist. Sometime in the early hours of November 6, 1954, Robert Hopkins became Vancouver's seventh murder victim and his own newspaper's front-page story. There were three daily newspapers operating in Vancouver in 1954, Vancouver Sun and The Province, which is still around, and the long-defunct Vancouver News Herald. The Herald, where Bob worked as a printer, was founded in 1933. It had a circulation of 10,000, and of the three newspapers, was definitely the underdog. But unlike the well-established Sun and Province, the Herald was a feisty paper well laid out and staffed with well-known newspaper people like Pierre Burton, Barry Broadford and Jaime Koshevoy. Pierre Burton, the paper's city editor when he was just 21 years old, would later become an author, television personality and Canadian icon. Barry Broadford went on to write highly regarded history books and Jaime Koshevoy moved to the province and later became managing editor at the Vancouver Sun. In those early years, reporters sat on orange crates and shared the typewriters. Just a few months before Bob's murder, the paper moved into larger premises on West Georgia Street. The building is long gone, and the Shangri-La, a luxury hotel and condo tower, has replaced it. At the time of Bob's death, the Herald called itself Western Canada's largest morning herald. But because it was a morning paper, the Herald was scooped by its competitors on its own employee's murder. When the Herald did run a catch-up story on its front page the next day, it had photos of Bob's cottage, as well as the picture showing a smiling, balding man wearing small round glasses. Robert had the photos taken at Marlowe's of British Columbia, a studio at Dunsmere and Seymour Streets that specialised in fashion and society photos. When he picked up the two sets of the photos shortly before his death, He told the studio's owner, Reuben Marlowe, that one set of pictures was for his sister May. The other, he said, he'd taken for a special friend. 
Marlowe told reporters that Bob appeared to be in a happy frame of mind and that he was a very peaceful and friendly person. On the face of it, it would be hard to imagine a more unlikely murder victim than unassuming Bob Hopkins. He was born in Belfast, Ireland, and moved to Edmonton with his parents as a small child. He apprenticed as a printer, moved to Vancouver in 1947, and spent a couple of years working at Union Printers before moving over to the composing room at the Vancouver News Herald. His closest relative was his sister May, a schoolteacher in Edmonton. The last time anyone at the Herald saw Bob alive was when his shift finished at 1.15 in the morning on Friday, November 5th, 1954, when he didn't turn up for his Sunday shift at the Herald and had not called in. His co-workers became worried. George Jones, foreman of the composing room, and Ernest Whitehouse, a printer that knew Bob from Edmonton, called around to his house after their shift ended shortly after midnight. Jones and Whitehouse found all the doors of the bungalow locked. The blinds were drawn and Friday and Saturday's newspapers were still on the front porch. When Bob didn't answer their repeated knocking on the front door and back door, they went to look for police. Jones waved down a passing police cruiser. The officer came back with him to the house. He found a ladder around the back and Jones and Whitehouse held it while he climbed up and went through a window. He called out to them that he'd found their friend. Even for a veteran police officer, the murder scene was horrific. Bob lay face up on the floor in front of the Chesterfield of his small living room. He was dressed in t-shirt, pants, shoes and socks and had an electric light cord wrapped around his neck. Two large pillows and one small brown one covered his face. His ankles were tied together with two neckties and one was tied to the leg of the Chesterfield. His pants had been pulled down to his ankles. The buttons and zipper ripped from the fabric. A pair of scissors and a penny lay beside his feet. When the officer removed the pillows, he saw that Bob's face was covered in blood, which had poured out of a hole in his forehead. The officer's first thought was he had been stabbed in the head with an ice pick. It was only later at the autopsy that Dr. Harmon, the pathologist, found that he'd been shot. The house was in shambles. Drawers and cupboards had been ransacked and the contents were scattered everywhere. Furniture lay strewn about, giving the impression that Bob had put up a fight. But there were no bruises on his body or on his hands to indicate that there'd been a struggle. Police found that the cord used to tie him up had been cut from a small radio in the living room. They didn't find any fingerprints or any sign of a weapon inside the house. Because there was blood on a chair in the kitchen, Dr. Harmon, the pathologist, thought that Bob had been shot with a 22 caliber gun and that his murderer had likely been standing over him. He was killed sometime in the early hours of Saturday morning and he'd likely lived for at least 30 minutes after he was shot. The most obvious motive was robbery, especially when police couldn't find either a wallet or money in the house. Also missing was a black and gold pocket watch engraved with his initials RDH on the back a pair of Falcon brand binoculars that were made in Japan and kept in a pigskin case, and a leather Gladstone bag. A Gladstone bag was like a small suitcase, likely what Bob's killer had used to carry away the other items. While police searched pawn shops and second-hand dealers in Vancouver, none of the items were ever recovered. Bob was comfortably off 
He earned $100 a week from his job at the Herald, and he had close to $10,000 in savings. I was curious what that would be now in $2,021, and Bob would have been earning a little over $50,000 a year in today's dollars, and $10,000 would be close to $100,000 in savings today. The problem was that the extraordinarily brutal method of killing seemed extreme even for a robbery home invasion, and police moved on to other theories. They searched for a connection in the recent spate of shootings, in particular Danny Brent's murder the previous September and the attempted murder of drug dealer William Semenek in Stanley Park just days before. Danny Brent's job as a bartender at the press club certainly would have introduced him to staff from all three daily newspapers. Between 1951 and 1966, the press club had a gay piano player appearing six nights a week. The press club was essentially a straight bar, but gays were tolerated. Since Bob wasn't known to drink or gamble by his friends and associates, even in a semi-tolerant environment, it's unlikely he would have wanted anyone from his work to know that he was gay. Ron Dutton, the West End founder of the BC Gay and Lesbian Archives, told me that in 1954, most gay people would have hidden their sexuality. Most gay people would not have been out. To have been out would have been to be ostracized socially. You'd lose your job, you'd lose your family, you'd lose your place in the community. To be identified as being out, you, are, uh, you would be ostracized. And this goes up into the 60s. So gay people, many of them lived permanently in closeted lives. People were willfully blind at the time, too, about this. I mean, I come from a little town where there were no gay people, or you wouldn't mm. imagine there was, because nobody talked about it, right. you know, ever. Certainly back then, that was the norm, was that people, you know, if they suspected something, they didn't, nobody mm. talked about it, because just talking about it was somehow... You weren't a nice person if you even thought about it. I was very surprised at the extent of those sorts of extremely violent murders that actually turned out to have a gay component in them. And of course, wouldn't have been reported in that regard by the legitimate press. They'd have reported the murder, but not the gay content in it. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Frustrated by the lack of leads, reporters interviewed Bob's co-workers and neighbours in an effort to find a new motive for his murder. But no one seemed to know him very well, and colleagues described him as a good worker who led a quiet life. One co-worker told a reporter that Bob was the kind of man you could work beside for years, but never really get to know. Another said he was not the kind of guy that would have a beer or sit in a poker game. Doug Milne, a Herald printer, and who likely knew Bob the best out of all of his co-workers, told the reporter that he just couldn't understand the murder. He said he didn't know Bob really well, but they'd gone to theatre under the stars a few times together and he'd been over to Bob's house. 
Bob, he said, would usually have a few beers, then fall asleep in his chair. Ernest Whitehouse, one of the men who found Bob's body and knew him from Edmonton, said he was the last man in the world you would expect to die violently. As far as he knew, Bob didn't have an enemy in the world. Bob had lived on Fleming Street in the Kensington Cedar area of Vancouver for about five years. His neighbours described him as a quiet man who kept his home clean and neat and had conservative habits. Mary Weir said she'd last seen Bob on the Thursday before his death. He walked past her house and waved to her while she stood looking out of the kitchen window. She said he would occasionally drop by with roses from his garden. Louise, Bob's next-door neighbour, said he was a very nice man who never bothered anyone. She noticed that sometimes he would bring a male friend home for a drink, and once she heard them singing. Bob loved children, she said, and would often hand out candy. While the newspapers avoided any outright reference to his homosexuality, the police investigation seemed to be heading in that direction. Herald employees told police that Bob had been seen in the company of a dark-haired mystery man, and they'd met several times in recent weeks. The mystery man was apparently unemployed, and they said that Bob had loaned him money. One of the Herald staffers said he'd given Bob and his friend a ride home to Bob's house on a couple of different occasions. Police refused to say how Bob's murderer got into the house, whether he had forced his way inside or if Bob had opened the door for him. An article in The West Ender, written in 1984 by Joe Swan, sheds a little more light on the original police investigation. Swan was a former VPD sergeant, and he was privy to the details of the VPD's case files. Unlike today, where it's a struggle to get any information out of police at all about unsolved murders, Swan's stories gave all the details. The investigation into Bob's murder, wrote Swan, started the same way they all did, with a thorough check of all the people who had known or dealt with the victim. Police had found Bob's address book, which included the contact details for the casual male acquaintances he would meet after work and sometimes bring home. As Ron Dutton explains, there were few places for gay men to safely meet other gay men in the 1950s. Generally speaking, there were very few places to meet. Uh, One was private house parties, the uh, Skid Row bars. To this day, a high degree of tolerance of aberrant behavior in the downtown east side bars. Everybody there has got a past. Everybody's got a story. And nobody looks too deeply into one another's pasts. And also booze cans. Illegal booze cans. Do you know what a booze can is? Like a blind pig to me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody's got a house and you come in the back door and, and they've got alcohol. So there were illegal booze cans that catered to the gay community. But in all of those places, a great danger of some kind of violence, whether it was a robbery or a mugging or being beaten up or being murdered, and a high degree of social acceptance of violence against gay people. Somehow they deserved this. And so the authorities looked the other way for much of this. If there was a known person, mm. they, they wouldn't be investigating very hard. They wouldn't be attempting to very hard to make a conviction. Ron's files have several accounts from gay men talking about the gay scene in Vancouver in the 1950s. One email mentions only G, the chauffeur for one of Vancouver's wealthiest families and says he threw wild parties for gay policemen in the gatehouse of a South Granville estate. 
The email doesn't mention the address of the gatehouse, but it immediately made me think of Shannon, the mansion at 57th and Granville Street that sits on 10 acres and was built in 1925 for B.T. Rogers, Vancouver's sugar baron. A 1994 issue of The Peak gives a first-hand account of being gay in post-war Vancouver. Thank God for the Hotel Vancouver. It had a beer parlor in the basement with two sections, ladies and escorts and men. The men's side was strictly gay. And it was small. I forget what the seating capacity of it was. It couldn't be more than 50 or 60. If you weren't in by 6 on Friday or Saturday night, you just didn't get a seat. Most socialising among gay men took place at house parties or a handful of nightclubs and hotels. There was the now-defunct Castle Hotel on Granville Street's Theatre Row. The Montreal Club was an after-hours BYOB club on Main and Hastings Streets where gay men could dance together. While a few of these nightclubs and hotels gave gay men a place to meet, it was by no means safe. If a crime against a gay person did make it to court, the homosexual panic defence was commonly used by defence lawyers right up until the 1980s. This defence was also highly successful in beating the charge. In this defence, the defendant claims that they were the object of a sexual advance by a homosexual. The defendant found the advance so offensive and frightening that they snapped and retaliated with unusual force and violence. The homosexual panic defence goes way back into English jurisprudence but was still in use in the 80s. It kind of went that you're a regular red-blooded Canadian and some guy comes along and you're getting drunk together and he puts his hand on your knee. So you grab a knife and you stab him 57 times and it is viewed as provocation. Uh, you know, of course a good red-blooded Canadian would would, guy would, 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 be, would react with horror and disgust uh, at this. So this became a very much a standard defense and lawyers were making use of the homosexual uh, panic defense right up into the 80s. So even at the, the point where a conviction might occur, your sentence would be ameliorated to some degree by the generally understood disgust mm. that society would have for those people as though they somehow deserved what they got. So uh, at every step along that way, gay people knew how vulnerable they were and consequently were deeply in the closet around their sexual identities. Ron has a thin file of articles on the Bob Hopkins murder. He notes that it was common for the media to report on a murder or act of violence and filter out gay content. The legitimate media, in quotation marks, wouldn't touch any gay subject. Quite often, as a historian, I have to be looking at whatever other implications there might be within that story that might suggest, but even then not assured that that story was actually uh, had gay content in it. The religious industry uh, had branded it as immoral, the legal industry as illegal, and the psychological industry as a mental illness. So for all of those reasons, those three huge forces that, that are operating in melding public opinion, as well as the self-opinion of gays and lesbians, was actively oppressive to people coming out and being themselves. This leaves gay people very vulnerable because on the one hand, 
they're open to assault and to violence that is viewed as legitimate violence against them. And as well, absorbing all that toxicity, things like alcoholism and suicide and so on are highly prevalent up until the mid-70s. So gay liberation really begins to flower in about 1972. And they did nothing else. What they did was change the public dialogue. So when gay liberation comes on, the press get it pretty quickly. They just either don't report it at all, or they report it in disguised language that simply avoids the whole issue of, of sexuality. And what it does is, it, of course, it makes people invisible. So that and, you know, people are able to say, I've never met a gay person. And really, they hadn't. Ron says that if gays or lesbians were mentioned at all in the 1950s, it was as perverts or deviates, or else they were lumped together with pedophiles and rapists under the general term of sexual deviancy. In fact, homosexuality wasn't decriminalised until 1969 as a result of legislation introduced two years before. Bob's autopsy was held 11 days after his death. The story that appeared in the Herald just said that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the forehead. The headline in his former newspaper was Herald Man's Death Ruled Unnatural. At the end of December 1954, detectives were telling reporters that they had a suspect. The man had been convicted of another serious similar crime and was in custody, but nothing ever came of it. The following March, newspapers were running stories with a photo of the murder weapon a sawed-off 22 caliber rifle that had been found lying in some grass in a lane near the murder house. The rifle was described as a Savage Model 4C with tapered round 24-inch barrel, five-shot detachable clip magazine and plated bolt and trigger. The rifle would have been sold between September 1st and November 5th, the day before Bob's murder. More than 100 people attended his funeral most of whom he'd probably never met. Bob is buried at Ocean View Cemetery in Burnaby, a suburb of Greater Vancouver. There was a $500 reward offered for information leading to an arrest. No one was ever charged, and Bob Hopkins' murder remains unsolved. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks to my special guest, Ron Dutton, This was actually an interview I did with Ron back in 2015 for my book Cold Case Vancouver. Ron founded the BC Gay and Lesbian Archives in 1976 and at that time he kept these records in his West End home. A couple of years ago he donated his holdings, which included over 750,000 documents, photos, newspaper stories, sound and image recordings to Vancouver Archives. Much of this incredible resource has now been digitised and I'll put a link to all of that in my show notes. For more about our gay history, check out the Really Gay History Tour by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours, and get 15% off your tickets when you use the code COLDCASE. For more information, please see my website, evelazarus.com, and if you're on Facebook, check out my group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. This week, it's my pleasure to end with a promo from our friends at The True Crime Files. 
Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported.